typically what we do is we come up and we walk through a text, and we're kind of going to do that today, but then also we are doing a kind of mission update on what Ben and I saw. Uh, many of you know that Ben and I, we went to India and Thailand. We were gone for 16 days. We took 11 flights. Average temperature was 110, 120 in India, and 90 roughly in Thailand. So, uh, in fact, when we went, this is the group of people that we went with. Uh, so, um, the guy in the middle is Brian McSwan. You see him on the video every once in a while up here. He's a pastor up in Bellingham. The guy on the far left is Rich. Uh, they went together, and of course, then Ben and I, and, or, yeah, and then of course, what you don't see is that there's dolphins kissing above us. So this is the group that you sent. So Phil, and actually here's another picture. So it's kind of a motley looking crew. This is on the Ganges River. Matt is the guy on the far right. He's the guy in charge of Project 92. Um, so just, you might want to pick better looking people next time to go on a mission trip. Um, but today, what we kind of want to do is just communicate what did we do, or why we went. Like why do we go on mission trips? Um, we want to talk about what we saw, and then what do we do in response? And so the first question is like, why do we go? Uh, for instance, why do we go to India and Thailand? Last year we went to Lebanon. In fact, in a few weeks, we have some women here who are going to Lebanon, and then some women who will also be going to Poland. Um, but why do we go? Why does the Bible talk so much about the sending forth the disciples, the going into all nations? And so to begin answering that question, I have a video that we're going to show. Uh, Matt, the um, head of Project 92, which is the organization we went to India with, uh, this is him, and it's a two-minute clip on him explaining his organization and why we go. Well, uh, good afternoon. Uh, my name is Matthew Smith, and uh, uh, God has called me to work in a ministry we call Project 92. And Project 92 is based from Isaiah 9, verse 2, which says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And so what God has called us to do is to be involved in His mission of advancing the light of the gospel, to peoples that are living in spiritual darkness, peoples in places like Calcutta and other places in India, also in Nepal, in Bhutan, in Bangladesh, and in Myanmar. This region of the world has approximately 1.6 to 1.7 billion people. It's about 20% of the world's population. And yet there are very, very few evangelical Christians that would live in this region. And the number of distinct ethnic groups, what we call people groups. There is over 2,500 people groups in India alone, and then probably another three to 400 in the other countries. So let's say around 3,000 distinct ethnic groups. And the majority of these are unreached, means they have little or no gospel witness among them. There are few, if any, believers living among these groups, and they need to hear the good news. And it's to these people groups that God has deployed his church. We see this in Matthew 28 verses 19 to 20. We see it in Matthew 24 verse 14. It says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed or preached to all nations as a testimony to all people and then the end will come. So all of these 3,000 people groups in these countries, they all must hear the good news of Jesus Christ. 
before Jesus will come back. And so what God has called us to do in a very small way is to join him in his effort of proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ to some of the ethnic groups in this part of the world. The task is great and, and it really it's a God-sized task and we need him to move because apart from him we can do nothing. So that's Matt, and uh, he kind of gives some of the numbers there, that there are about 3,000 uh, people groups, 1.6 billion people, 20% of the world's population, and yet of those people, there's a very, very small amount that actually know Jesus. There's very few churches. Um, in fact, I think the Christian population in India, which has about 1.2 billion people, is less than 1%. Um, and so when we're talking about a spiritually dark place in the world, it's that window right there where these countries take place that they do not know the gospel. There are not churches, sustainable churches, that are multiplying and reaching other areas. In most of those people groups, that does not exist. And so one reason, why do we go? We go to proclaim Jesus. We go to proclaim the light into the darkness that these people would have hope. He mentioned Matthew 24, 14, which says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And so one of the reasons we go is because we desire Jesus to return, is we want to take forth his gospel and go to all nations. But I don't think that's the biggest reason why we go. I think there's an underlying reason, which is why we go, and for that, we are going to look at Psalm 96, and so if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to uh, turn to Psalm 96, and go ahead and stand with us. We're going to stand as we read God's Word. We do so because we believe God's Word comes with His full authority. It comes inspired by the Holy Spirit for the purpose of equipping and strengthening the church. And so as we go through here, I want you to think, what does this psalm say about God? And what it says about God, why would that propel us out into mission? So Psalm 96, we're going to do the whole chapter. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him, strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering, come into his courts, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness, tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the nations be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the fields exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Let's pray. Father, we come, and Lord, we hear, we know, we read that, Lord, you are great and greatly to be praised. Lord, you have done great and marvelous works among the peoples. Your glory has gone 
forth. Lord, we know that there is no God that compares with you. All other gods are worthless. Lord, you are the one who made the heavens. You made the earth. You made everything in it. We know that you sustain all of creation. And so, Lord, we praise you, for there is none worthy but you. And, Lord, I just pray as we now look at your word and we look at what's happening in other parts of the world, God, I pray you would use your word today to to equip us, to strengthen us, to embolden us in our faith that we would share your gospel boldly, that we would come alongside churches and missionaries in other parts of the world to help strengthen them, that they would continue to go forth in boldness sharing the gospel. Lord, I pray if anyone does not know you today, they would hear the beauty of the joy of the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ, the hope that we have in him, and that they would believe. God, be with us this morning. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Um, so, as we come in here, we see, uh, we're going to just kind of talk variously about Psalm 96. I, so much of me just kind of wanted to break down the whole passage, but our point isn't just to be in Psalm 96 because we're going to talk about India and Thailand. So really using this to kind of shape and form the whole conversation. But what we see is that in this psalm, the nations are called to worship God. At least six times in this psalm we see this. Verse 1, sing to the Lord all the earth. Verse 3, declare his glory among the nations. Again in verse 3, Declare his marvelous works among the nations. Verse 7, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Verse 9, worship the Lord, tremble before him all the earth. Verse 10, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. So everything about this passage is about proclaiming the God of the Bible to the nations. So sometimes people go, did Israel understand mission in the Old Testament? Yes, they knew that the God of the Bible, that Yahweh, was to be proclaimed to all peoples, to all nations, to all languages. But what do we say? What does the psalm say about when we go forth, what are we actually telling people about this God? And verse 3 gives us our answer. It says, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among the peoples. So what are these What are these works, these marvelous works? What is this glory? Well, the immediate context of this psalm most likely comes from 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verses 23 to 33, because this psalm is taken from that, word for word. You can go there and read basically this whole psalm right there. Now, the context of 1 Chronicles 16 is that David has just brought the Ark and the Covenant into Jerusalem, so he's brought it amongst God's people, and they're celebrating what God has done. They're celebrating that God has conquered all the other nations, that his presence dwells with them, and that this God is worthy to be praised in all peoples and all nations. So that's the immediate context of this psalm. But as we step back and we say, what are the marvelous works of God? How do we see his glory we would say that, well, there is one work that God has done that all the other works have pointed to and that stands above everything else, and it is the sending of His Son, Jesus Christ, to this world to die on a cross that we who 
who do not believe that we who are lost in our sins, that we could be forgiven, that we could be adopted into his family, be brought into his kingdom, have everlasting life with him. That is the marvelous work of God. That's what the whole Bible, if you were here last week, the whole sermon was about moving towards, it's all about the, the cross, about the death and resurrection of Jesus. When you're in the book of Hebrews, it says Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. He's the blazing image of God. So to see Jesus is to see the very glory of God. So what Jesus came to do is to show God's glory. And the way he did that most was through his death and his resurrection on the cross. Showing his mercy. Showing his justice. Showing his wrath. Showing his faithfulness. Showing his patience. Demonstrating all who God is for us that we could be saved. And so that is what we proclaim. That is, that is what churches in other parts of the world are declaring. That is what we proclaim every week when we gather. That's what Derek uh, at Stanwood, that's what they proclaim tonight as they gather. Bobby, one of their pastors you guys know down in Portland, that's what they're proclaiming at this very moment. Our message is the glory of God, which is Jesus Christ who was crucified and rose from the grave. But why does this God do that? How is it that our God does a great and glorious and marvelous work that should be proclaimed to all nations? Like, why is it that we proclaim this God and what he did versus what many other people believe in other gods and the works and the things that they would ascribe to them? Well, again, we come to our passage. Verse 4 gives us the answer. And it says, for great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. It's because our God is great. And the word great means abundance. It means exceedingly highest degree. So the reason our God has done great and marvelous works that should be proclaimed to all peoples is because our God is great, and he's done works that no other gods can do, that there is none greater. See, our God is not a local or a tribal deity. Our God rules the earth. So if we want to know what is God's locality, it would be creation. It would be everything that is exists. That is God's local area. There's no region that he's limited to. There's no boundaries that he has. There's no tribe. There's no continent. There's no space or location in all of creation that limits our God. But our God is great, and he transcends all places that he would rule and be sovereign over every part of creation, over every people, over every language, over every tribe. Verse 5 says, all other gods are worthless. The word worthless means weak and nothing. So he says, all the other gods, all of them, and they, they amount to nothing. They're weak. And then, as if to explain how strong our God is, notice then in verse 5, he says, For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord, Yahweh, made the heavens. So he goes right back to the creating power of God, saying, these gods are weak. You want to know the God that we serve? He's the one who spoke everything into existence. He's the one who sent his son Jesus to die on the cross that we could have life. So this is why we go. We go not because we have a God a little better than other gods. 
We don't go because we have simply good ideas, because we have a way to improve their life. We have a God who gives life, who is great and greatly to be praised. So that is the foundation and the reason that we go. That's why we went to India and Thailand. That's why uh, some of our women are going to Poland and Lebanon. That's why we're looking at having many, many, many more mission trips that will go to other parts of the world so that we collectively will be able to go proclaiming this God, that we would see His glory go throughout all of the earth, because that is the message of God's word. As he created, it was with the purpose that his glory would be proclaimed everywhere through image bearers of him. And the way that we are restored into image bearers of God is through Jesus Christ. And so that's the reason why we go. It's not that we have good ideas. It's not because you had the best people, because <laughs> I was looking through them. I told my wife, I'm like, we have these motley-looking pictures and these goofy pictures of us. We don't even have like a, an official, like, hey, this is, this is the team that was sent. Um, but we go because we have great news of a great God. So uh, what I'm going to do now is we're going to talk about what we saw and so I'm going to talk about India, and then Ben's going to come up in a few moments, and he's going to share about Thailand. So we thought that might be a neat way to kind of give perspectives on, on just the things that we saw. Uh, so we kind of have pictures that go with a lot of it, uh, because we kind of wanted you just to have a taste of what we saw. So we, uh, we first landed in New Delhi, and when you land in New Delhi, there's a, a large exhibit of Gandhi. Um, that is there, so it's kind of taking the panoramic view there. We could probably just leave the lights off, probably throughout it. Um, so Gandhi, um, he led uh, India into independence against British rule. He's not the originator of Hinduism. Uh, he was a great Indian activist. He's often called the father of the nation. Uh, there are roughly 1.2, 1.3 billion people in India. Approximately 900 million of them are Hindu. Uh, C.S. Lewis said the Hindu worldview is the major alternative to the biblical worldview. So when you come in to New Delhi, you're faced right there with a man who truly represents really what, what a lot of Hinduism is. It is the third largest religion in the world underneath Christianity and Islam. Here's a quote, <clears throat> Here's a quote from the IMB, which is the Southern Baptist uh, Mission Board. It says, There is no definitive starting point to Hinduism, no founder, no single text in history of Hinduism. Even the term Hinduism, as we know it today, is the result of the British attempt during colonial times to group India's numerous indigenous religions into a single overarching tradition. So basically, they all believed very, very different things all throughout India, but there were similar threads, and so they just said, well, they're, they're Hindu. Um, some scholars believe Hinduism is the oldest religion in the world. Uh, and when you look at Hinduism, it has many different heads, it takes many different forms, but there are... Um, just a few primary gods in, in Hinduism, but they are accompanied by many, many other gods, which total to around 33 million gods. Uh, the god or goddesses you worship is often determined by your family 
or by other factors. So uh, if we were all from India and we were Hindu, my family might worship certain gods, your family would worship certain gods, your family would worship other gods based upon just either location, um, heritage, uh, where we're located. Um, in fact, here's a picture of one of the temples. Uh, they're kind of like perverted precious moments dolls on top of the uh, so sorry if that ruins your whole precious moments like little figurine section at home Um, it's kind of like that when you look at them Uh, so there was another temple we saw that just had uh, probably a couple hundred of these figurines all on top now it's important to know the majority of their gods are angry like when we're on the Ganges River which is where Matt was in that video uh, they believe the god of the Ganges River is the god Kali, and he's best known as the god of uh, death and destruction. Um, so their gods are angry, and so what they do is they're, they're trying to pacify their gods. They're trying to do good deeds to get on the good side of their god. You see, Hinduism is largely made up of karma. If you do good, good things will happen to you. If you do bad, bad things will happen to you. That's how they explain um, injustices, pain, and suffering in the world. They believe all of life is caught up in this cycle of birth and rebirth, so reincarnation. The way you behave now, the way you act, determines uh, your status in your next life. And they're constantly trying to do good, not because they love one another. They have no motivation out of a love for other people. Their motivation is a fear of their gods trying to come into some sort of salvation that they're hoping to obtain. Um, But what we understood when talking to many of them and and to many of the pastors is there's no real hope in India. There's no hope in Hinduism. Even even the documents that they do have that that describes kind of the caste system will say majority of the caste, 75% of the caste, have absolutely no hope of salvation. But yet they continue through this cycle of reincarnation and karma that they believe in um, as a means of trying to hopefully earn so they will do things like washing themselves in the ganges river which is incredibly sick which accumulates to approximately a third of the deaths in india uh they will practice child sacrifice we showed a video of that weeks ago Um, they will do whatever it takes out of fear of their gods in order to earn salvation so that is the the darkness that you come into when you come into india Uh, Now to kind of switch gears, we'll talk about the the churches and the pastors that we were with. Uh, We flew from New Delhi, then we went to Chennai, which is in the southeastern part, into the state of Tamil Nadu. Uh, And so I have a picture of the churches here. In fact, the top left picture is a church slash orphanage. And all of those people up there, uh, the men sat on the... On the left, the women on the right, which I totally think we should try that someday, just for fun. Uh, you know, a little cultural appreciation. Uh, come on, that would be fun. Wouldn't it? Could you imagine visitors on that day? You'll need to sit over here. Uh, but uh, those are all the pastors and their wives from Tamil Nadu. So those, and those pastors and wives, those are largely, uh, many of them, that Brian and Rich, the guy from the original pictures, that their church supports in Bellingham. So they support these pastors, and these are just pictures of other churches. In fact, uh, here's a building of a church. Um, so that was actually probably one of the uh, nicer buildings that they had. Uh, it is hot in them. Uh, 
The next one we have is we were teaching there. Um, ben, is, ben is teaching. We all kind of got up at various times and, and we would share the gospel. They loved when we would come and we would share the, the gospel with them. Now, each pastor leads two to three to four churches. Their villages are far apart, so they need motorcycles, they need transportation uh, to get to all the different villages. To put that in perspective, uh, we would leave from our hotel, and we'd be gone for approximately 10 hours, and we would visit maybe three. Did we even visit four villages in one day? I think three was the most, and we would be in the vehicles from six to seven hours at a time. Uh, to get to three villages throughout the day. Uh, so that's the distance that these places are apart. Um, the temperature is roughly 115, 120 degrees. Uh, the persecution in this area is primarily verbal. Now some of them had been beaten, some of them had been hit. Not a lot of violent persecution down in this state, at least as of right now. So that's where we began our trip. Then we went up to Andhra Pradesh, which is the state right above it. So I was still staying in the southeastern part. And we went to um, a city called Vijawada, and we met with these 10 pastors. So the men up on top are kind of the regional leaders. They're the Chris Gorman of that area. If that helps you, Chris Gorman is our regional uh, minister. He oversees kind of uh, uh, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, some of Montana, and maybe going into Utah and stuff like that. So he kind of oversees and he encourages and, and tries to help equip pastors. That is what these men primarily do. And then underneath them, these are the pastors that were at this group. Now, these pastors also all lead multiple churches. So they'll usually have one church of 20, maybe 30 at the most, and then they're in other villages where they are, uh, they have small groups of maybe three, four, five, maybe more. Now here, persecution is much more intense. We were not able to meet together in a public location, so what we did is we put all of our money together, and we paid for them and for us, and we went to this island, which is kind of a resort area, where we met there, and there was a special meeting place, so we're kind of off the grid, away from everyone, uh, just because of the hostility in this area. And as we came, and as we were there, they loved to honor us, so they, they would put these shawls on us. I think we each got three shawls. I think we got one down in Chennai and two up here or something like that. Uh, so they continued to give us these shawls, which they had, they had great joy in honoring us as we came to visit them. Each of these pastors would stand. They would give their testimonies. They all knew men and women who had been martyred. Uh, they had all been threatened and beaten for the gospel. Now, the new government that's just come into place uh, is their goal. We'll see if it happens, but their goal is to make India an all-Hindu state, which will then make it legal to kill Christians um, or any other religious group. Now, already it is legal in many of the villages. The villages, if you're a Christian, you can be killed and there will be nothing done for you at all by the officials. In fact, uh, here's one of the pastors. Uh, he spoke. Uh, he lives in Odessa, and, uh, which is a very radical um, area for Hinduism. Um, he knows at least 52 pastors who have been killed in violent ways. 
Uh, there are some 30,000 Christians in Odessa who have been driven from their homes. They now live homeless in the forest, meeting in secret for fear of being discovered. Uh, this pastor, he and his wife, were on a motorcycle, and they were going down the road at night. Uh, radical Hindus surrounded them. They said, give us your motorcycle or we'll kill you and we'll rape your wife. Uh, so they got up, they fled, and um, uh, they took their motorcycle. And so that is a normal part of their life. Like, that's, that's not abnormal for them. This is the, the life that they live. Uh, so they do secret church style when they gather, which means if they have a group of uh, 20 people, everyone comes in about every 30-minute segments. So you can just imagine how long that takes to gather a church when everyone comes in once every 30 minutes and you have 10, 15, or 20 people in your church. Uh, it takes all day just for the church to gather. Uh, because if everyone comes in at once, automatically in these villages, they'll know who are Christians, they'll mark them, and they will kill them. Uh, they sing very softly. And so down in Chennai, what, what was fun is they would sing loudly. In fact, there was um, some complaints uh, from some of the villagers about, man, they sing so loud. Uh, here they don't. They sing very softly uh, like a whisper because otherwise the lives of everyone would be at risk. A couple things stood out while being here. Um, number one, none of these people asked for, per, for the persecution to stop. None of them even asked to pray that way. Uh, rather, they, they regularly said pray for boldness, pray that the gospel will keep going forth. Um, just like we read in Acts chapter 4, where John and uh, Peter, they're arrested for the gospel. Uh, they're taken before, they're beaten before the Pharisees, and then they are released and they go back to the church and they pray for boldness and they keep going out in boldness. That's very much what we saw there. Uh, they regularly quoted the line that the church goes forth by the blood of the martyrs. Um, so they very much realize that their lives will probably end in martyrdom. Um, they were very humble people who truly loved one another. You could see that when they gathered, they didn't gather because of convenience. They didn't gather because, hey, it's easy to come. But they gathered out of, like, necessity. And when they were with each other, they loved one another. They needed each other's prayers, their support, and their encouragement. Uh, so there was a sweet fellowship just being with them. And that fellowship was shared with us. In fact, I have a fun picture here of... Uh, this is probably like the shortest guy they had, too, um, and standing next to, to Ben. But the smile that he had is really the smile that they had on a continual basis. They loved being with each other. And that was a, this encouraging, convicting, like, like when we gather, how do we gather? Like when we gather, are we coming in to, to be here and then we leave? When they come, they come to spend time with each other because they know they need each other. They know they need their prayers. They know they need their support. They know they need their encouragement. Uh, so as much as we encouraged them, I think they encouraged us and, and uh, convicted us in many ways. How do we look at church? Is this just that thing we, we mark on the box? Or is this an area that we come because these are believers that we desperately need the prayers of and that we're encouraging that we would all stand forth, uh, stand firm in boldness? And the last thing, uh, number three, they, they loved the Word of God. They 
love God's word. So we would be speaking to them, uh, sharing the gospel, and uh, they'd all be seated, and we would mention, you know, Philippians 3 or, you know, whatever passage, and they would be there within seconds. And, and I don't mean like 20 seconds, I mean like two seconds, like three seconds tops, like their sword drills were amazing. Um, and oftentimes the women would beat, it, would, would beat the men, and as soon as they got there, they just read it. And they, they, of course they read it because we weren't going to read it for them, because <laughs> they would have to then be translated. But, but it was incredible at the speed that they turned, but, but you could tell that came out of a hunger for the word. Like they know the word, not because it's nice, not because it's convenient, but because it's the very food for their souls that they cling to on a daily basis that they would go forth and proclaim the gospel. Um, and so there's just some of the things that I saw being there. Uh, that's a taste of India. So Ben's going to come forth and he's going to share on Thailand. morning. Missed you guys last week. It's good to be home. So Nick and I were blessed to spend about six days in Thailand um, after our journey through India. And uh, during that time, Nick was able to uh, cross off an item on his bucket list, if we can get that picture up there. That's right. He got to drive on the left side for the very first time. I really appreciated your prayers. Now he did pretty good. <laughs> uh, we spent the bulk of our time uh, in the Uban province, which is on the eastern side uh, near the border with Laos. Uh, and there we visited with my father-in-law, actually, who serves as the director of a small uh, missions project called Southeast Asia Opportunities, or SEOPS for short. And SEOPS, um, their purpose for existing is to see the glory of God made manifest among the unreached peoples of Thailand and Laos uh, through active evangelism, uh, through uh, discipleship, uh, towards a church planting movement. Uh, this picture of Nick faces east, I'm sorry, faces west into, into Thailand, uh, but just a few hundred yards behind me, I took the picture, just a few hundred yards behind me was the Lao border. And Laos is a closed communist country where it is illegal to share the gospel, it is illegal to gather um, as believers in groups of larger than five, and pastors are routinely arrested and beaten, uh, and Bibles are confiscated. Seops has permission to build houses uh, for widows in a large village in Laos. They have permission from the government, um, and thus giving them a legitimate reason for being in that country uh, while also doing gospel work. And God willing, uh, the manpower and resources for that project will be available soon. Uh, Nick and I definitely wanted to get into Laos, but it uh, logistically did not happen this time um, on our trip. So we spent our time seeing what God is doing uh, in Seops and through the local church uh, in the sub-district on the eastern side of Thailand. Um, that's a little bit isolated. It's... Um, not a popular tourist destination. It's, it's not frequented by Westerners. Uh, it's very flat, uh, just rice field after rice field after rice field. 
very beautiful this time of year because uh, the rains have started and everything is just like a carpet of green. It was pretty amazing. Um, but it's rather untouched um, by the west and quite rustic. Uh, the subdistrict my father-in-law lives in is called Buntarik. It has a population of about 90,000 souls. And uh, this is the only church in that entire district. About 20 people worshiped with us there on Sunday on a dirty little alley street about 100 yards off of the main strip. Um, you wouldn't know it's there unless somebody told you it was there. Um, evangelical Christians make up less than two-thirds of 1% of the population of Thailand. So less than 0.67%. To put this another way, Dallas, Texas has over twice as many evangelical Christians than the entire nation of Thailand of about 70 million people. The vast majority of Thailand, some 85%, is Buddhist. There's a saying Nick and I heard frequently while we were there, and it goes, to be Thai is to be Buddhist, to be Buddhist is to be Thai. But mixed into this cultural Buddhism is this ancient animistic practices that predates Buddha. Uh, these spirit houses are on every single property in various levels of ornateness and whatnot, but they, they mark major intersections, they mark property uh, boundaries, they exist everywhere. And the purpose of these spirit houses is to offer sacrifices to the local spirit in that area. Sound familiar? Sounds like Hinduism. Hinduism was in this region way before Buddhism, and then it just kind of fizzled out and, and Buddhism took over. But those same superstitions, those same appeasement processes for various and sundry little gods over these little territories still exist. It's still prevalent in the midst of this cultural Buddhism. Despite an evangelical missionary presence in Thailand for over 200 years, 88.2% 88 of Thailand is still unreached. Think about that reality for just a moment. Only 12% of that country after 200 years has heard the gospel. Persecution is not an issue in Thailand. The spiritual soil there, the, the stronghold and the stranglehold of Buddhism, that's the real issue there. It's not persecution. That's the reason why the good news has been so resistant to spread there is because to be Thai is to be Buddhist. To be Buddhist is to be Thai. If I give up my Buddhism, I'm giving up my identity in my family, in my nation, and they love being Thai. Buddhism affects literally every facet of culture and society in Thailand. In the town where we stayed for five nights, this temple-like structure marks the town center. That's how they marked it. It wasn't some other kind of monument. It wasn't a, a pillar. It was literally this temple structure was the center of town. Other larger temple structures are as prevalent as churches are in Tennessee. They're everywhere. Everywhere. People go to these temples to pray, to offer incense uh, or other tributes. Maybe it was produce. Um, and they would give money to the monks there in order to gain merit, to gain favor, to gain karma. Because the, the same system of, of birth and rebirth exists there as well, hoping to obtain salvation through, through 
their teachings through meditation, through you, you name it, it's there. And their temples there are, are extremely gilded and, and fancy, unlike the, the temples in, in uh, Hinduism, which were kind of gross and filthy. Um, all the temples in, in Thailand were just extremely ornate and fancy and, and gilded and polished and the floors were clean and you took off your shoes and, and they really took a lot of care in showing off their temples. But it's just as idolatrous as Hinduism. It's just as lost. It doesn't matter how polished and how fancy it is. It's still empty and meaningless. We visited a, uh, a hilltop temple that was a little bit bigger than some of the other ones um, and that one was um, extremely ornate. Um, I mean, just from an architectural standpoint, it was, it was pretty amazing um, until you saw people on their knees worshiping. Worshiping what? An empty statue, a meaningless prayer to the air. Um, on the back of this large temple was this ornate mural of the Tree of Life, which you're thinking, what? The Tree of Life? That's, that's weird. Um, that's not at all Buddhist, by the way. This has elements of Thai folklore that they have woven into their understanding of Buddhism. So even in their folklore, there's an element of truth. I mean, we, we believe in a tree of life, right? So the truth has been warped and it's been twisted and it's been, it's been turned into a lie and it's been turned into deception. Um, but they're still crying out for that truth. They're still seeking that truth. It's just not this. This, is, this part's crazy. Next to every single school in Thailand is a temple. Think about that for a second. How many schools are in Thurston County? Where's Sam? She'd probably know. North Thurston County district has 24 schools. Next to every single one of those schools would be a temple in Thailand. And as part of the children's teaching and as part of their curriculum, they would go over to the temple and learn about Buddhism, just like learning about math and reading and science. And it's just incorporated, blended seamlessly as part of their identity, as part of their education, as part of their culture. And yet secularism and materialism are also on the rise in Thailand. Uh, while most Thais maintain their cultural identity in Buddhism, uh, they are very much enamored with the West. Uh, the way they dress, uh, just the billboards, the, the materialism is very, very rampant there. They have malls bigger than anything any of us have ever seen in this country. Everywhere. They're huge in the big cities. Um, they love to learn about Christmas and Easter because to them it's a cultural exchange. And the more they can know about the West, the more affluent they will be. The, the, the better off they will be if they learn better English than other people, they'll get the better job. They're, they're, that's the language of the elites. And so they're enamored with, with our culture. Um, and they want to know these certain elements, but they, they're still blinded by their motivation for it. Nick and I freely shared the gospel. Actually, probably skip two. Um, freely shared the gospel in this local village school with the teachers and even the director in the, in the bottom left corner. That's the director of the school. And because we were speaking in English, we could literally say whatever we wanted. 
So, so Nick shared the gospel. And then I talked about snow because I'm a loser. I should have shared the gospel. But then the next classroom I shared the gospel and I made up for it, right? I showed a picture of my kids in the snow and they were like, whoa. It doesn't exist there. They, the, the gospel is not a threat to them when it's coming from white people. Because when it's coming from white people, it's just a cultural exchange. So yeah, tell us about you, Jesus. He's not a threat to our Buddhism. Because we want to learn more. And, and the more we know, the more affluent we can be. So, so sharing the gospel there is not, is not a hindrance in any way. Um, we got to sit in on a district-level meeting uh, between CEOPS and basically kind of like what we'd call like a, like a superintendent about the possibility of bringing in English-speaking camps to these local village schools and, and teaching them about Christmas, teaching them about Easter, because it was in English. And they were excited for it. They're like, yeah, yeah, w when can you come? Uh, how much would we have to pay you? They want to pay us to share the gospel in these schools. And we're like, no, we'll do it for free. What? Blown away. The spiritual soil in Thailand is extremely hard. And yet the gospel is going forth. Uh, we got to worship with this small cell group uh, in the village of Nansung uh, on a Thursday morning. Um, there were about 108 villages uh, in the sub-district, and right now there are three functioning cell groups or prayer groups that are meeting, uh, like this one, meeting in, in a house, or this was kind of, I guess you'd call it a garage. We met in a garage that day. Um, and there are three of these cell groups happening right now. Um, but our God, our God is worthy of being served in 108 of those villages. Our, our God is worthy of being proclaimed in all 114 people groups in Thailand. The name of Jesus is worthy of being praised in all 128 people groups in Laos. These people need the gospel. They need Jesus. Now that we've seen these people, now that we've seen the need, now that we've seen the lies and, and the darkness that is, is got a stranglehold on these regions, what's our response? What are we going to do? How are we going to respond to the fact that the Jesus that died for us, the Jesus that we serve, is the same Jesus that died for them? What do we do now? So that's the question that we want to answer. Um, so just a couple points. One, we, we want to pray for boldness. Um, at the end of Ephesians 6, chapter 18 through 20, Paul has been talking to the Ephesians, and he says, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Uh, so Paul's actually in prison. Um, this is one of his prison epistles, and he's writing that, um, that he would speak boldly. So we need to pray for, for the pastors in India, 
to preach boldly for the, the Christians there in Thailand, that they would be bold. And, and as we think through this, we need to be thinking, okay, how are we praying for them? And that's the same way we need to be praying for ourselves as well on a daily basis, that, that we would pray for boldness. Um, they're facing very real life-threatening persecutions. One of the passages that they read to us, which is a daily um, application for them, was Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's not theoretical or hypothetical. That is reality for those pastors. They know that by being a Christian, their kids are at risk every day, and some of them have been killed. Their wives are at risk every day, and some of them are killed or raped. They know that they could be killed at any moment. So this, do we love Christ more than anything? That is, a, that is one thing they wrestle with, and they're praying for boldness on a regular basis. Um, so we need to pray for them. Pray for those in Thailand that they would not fall into the apathy of the Buddhism and say, well, to be Thai is to be Buddhist, to be Buddhist is Thai. But how do we push in? How do we, not, how do we not grow weary when the soil is not changing as fast as we want it to? And we need to think about that prayer for us as well. But we don't have this type of persecution, and yet so often we are not bold in sharing the gospel. Yet we are not risking our children, our wives, our, our families. We're risking maybe a reputation, maybe a friendship, maybe. How are we proclaiming the gospel? So let us think, as we pray for them, those are the ways we need to pray for ourselves as well. Uh, so we need to pray for boldness. Number two, we need to pray for more laborers. Matthew 9, 35 to 38, this is Jesus speaking. He says, and Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogue, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to the disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Notice, there's a lot of people here. And the harvest is ripe. He doesn't say, pray that these guys will be more fruitful. He says, pray for more people. Pray for more laborers. The answer is not that this pastor is able to reach more villages or that this guy is able to reach more. It's that more people would go and proclaim the gospel. This means we really need to be praying on how God is calling us. Are we to go? It means we need to give support to nationals on the ground as well as missionaries who are going. And when we talk about going, going means partnering, not taking over. Like when we're looking at like anything in India and Thailand, or when we're in Lebanon and Poland, we're not white saints coming in to, to save people and to fix things. We're coming in to, what are the nationals doing? What is the church doing? How do we come alongside, strengthen, and encourage that the gospel would go forth, especially when, when we're not there? But the call to go is a call for everyone. If you are here, if you're a believer, you have the Spirit of Christ in you. He has awoken you, made you alive, given you his Spirit, that you would be equipped, strengthened, and trained, that you would speak the gospel. That is the reality for every single believer. You are a missionary, at least local. You're called to support global and very likely go global. 
at least for short term, possibly long term. So we need to wrestle with these. There are people, which is great, when we go, we just reminded so much of the truth. There is darkness in this world, so much darkness, and they need to hear the light of the world. They need to know that Jesus has come. They need to know there's not a God they need to fear, but there's a God that they can love, and he has sent his son to die to save us so that by grace we'd be saved, not by works, not by hoping we've done enough to pacify this God so he won't hurt us. But There's a God who at his own cost, his own expense, sent forth his son. The world needs to hear that. It is a gospel that saves. And when we go forth and we're hearing the stories there, as they preach, as they share, people are coming to know Jesus. They just need more laborers. We need more to go forward, short-term and long-term. We need more supporting financially. And we need to remember that we go because Jesus is coming. At the end of Psalm 96, it's all about how all of creation is full of joy as, as seeing that Jesus is coming, that uh, the Lord reigns. It says, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fields it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. Why? Because he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. The whole tenor of Psalm 96 is everyone needs to worship God because there's joy in worshiping God. We go proclaim Jesus because it is out of joy, not out of, not of, of a fear. It's, a, it's an obligation, but it's a joyful, willing obligation, if that makes sense. We go proclaiming out of joy to bring people into that joy as well because Christ is coming. And we're told that at the Father's right hand are pleasures forevermore, meaning in his presence there is joy. So when Christ comes, all who know him will be entering into the physical presence of God's joy for all of eternity. So we're not calling people into like a little bit better lifestyle. We're not calling people to improve something. We're calling them into the greatest joy that they they can have for the very purpose in which they were created to being in the presence of God. Philippians 3, Paul says, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord and Savior. That is why we go. Because there is no one else worthy. There is none greater. Um, so what we wanted to do today is basically say, why do we go? We go because our God is great. And the world needs to hear this God. And he hears it through the disciples going forth. God doesn't bypass the church. He uses the church. So we wanted to sh tell you what we saw, the darkness that is there, and yet there's these pockets of light. There's these churches. There's these believers. And what they need, they need people to keep coming, to encouraging them, to support them. They need people committing to pray for them on a daily basis that they will stand firm. And we, we did so so that we would be challenged as well as a church, what God is doing there and how we can be a part of that, but also what is God doing here and how are we living as disciples that count Jesus as, as more surpassing worth than anything else, that we love him more than we love our families or anything else in this world.
And so I want us to be challenged and encouraged. Man, God is going forth. The light is going forth. And yet, we're called to be a part of that globally and locally. So I'm going to pray. And then the men are going to come forward. And what we're going to do is we're going to celebrate and remember what God has done for us and the very message that we proclaim as we take communion this morning.